In Black and White is brought to you by subscribers of The Herald Sun. Our subscribers get access to the full Herald Sun website, including companion articles to this podcast, digital versions of the newspaper and much more. If that's something that interests you, go to heraldsun.com.au slash subscribe for more information. She had to get into Rome. The airport had been bombed, apparently, and she was parachuted in. We now introduce to you... Nancy Weir, girl pianist. They said that she had the greatest ear since Mozart. I shall now play this little piece that I composed when I was a teen. She was a member of the resistance. She was dropped into occupied France. She parachuted into Germany night after night behind the lines and spied for the Allies. I'm Jen Kelly and this is In Black and White, a podcast about some of Victoria's forgotten characters. In this episode, we explore the intriguing tale of Nancy Weir, a child prodigy and classical pianist who became a musical spy for the Allies against the Germans during World War II and the stories of her being parachuted in behind enemy lines. Weir shot to fame at age 13 when she performed at Melbourne Town Hall, playing Beethoven's Piano Concerto No. 3 with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. She was born in Melbourne but then grew up behind the bar of a pub her father ran in the New South Wales Riverina town of Lockhart, where she would play songs on the piano to entertain customers. There's a resurgence in interest in Nancy Weir's life since the recent discovery of a film of her at age 14 at the 3LO radio studios in Melbourne. It's been found in all places in the University of South Carolina archives. Melbourne musician and music teacher Stephen Langley has been researching the life of Nancy Weir, and he joins us today. Stephen, welcome to the In Black and White podcast. Thank you, Jen. Yeah, it's great to be here. Great to talk about Nancy Weir. Lovely. Can you tell us why do you have an interest in oh, Nancy Weir? Nancy Weir. Look, I think it's a fascinating story. She was obviously a musician of the highest calibre. And the fact that she's homegrown, she comes from Melbourne, and she had this meteoric rise to fame and adoration, really, when you think about how she was received in Melbourne when she was a 13-year-old. So there's a fascinating sort of backstory there. And then, of course, the involvement you know, during the war, what she did during the was a is a really interesting subject in itself her rise to fame and um yeah and i think a lot of it's come about since the fox movie tone outtakes have become available and we've now have this film of her in 1929 and i think that was the catalyst that's what sort of set the ball rolling okay wonderful well let's start at the beginning so she was born in 1915 in kew in melbourne suburbs so she was born during world war one now i've read that she knew the piano keyboard from the age of 18 months and that when she was four she sneaked out to a nearby convent to have lessons from a nun (laughs) yes it's amazing isn't it So, yeah, look, incredible beginnings. And then one interesting anecdote is that at the 1926 Australia Day exhibition, there was a piano stall. There was like a stall where people could get up and perform. And she sat there and performed uh, all her repertoire that she had learned herself, taught herself. And she was like a magnet. People came from everywhere just to hear this young child just uh, basically improvising, playing pieces and including... Amongst them was the, uh, I think it was the owner of the store was a student or an associate of Ada Corder or Ada Freeman. And Ada Freeman was one of Melbourne's most established teachers. And they heard this child playing and said, what's going on here? This child should be formally taught, should be supported. And from that point on, there was a new relationship with Ada Corder was established and then 
Nancy was able to have formal lessons and then that was the beginning of her meteoric rise to okay. fame. Okay, and you mentioned the concert at Melbourne Town Hall at age 13. How unusual was that for the Times? Very unusual. Very unusual for a child to be uh, to have that sort of uh, fame bestowed upon her. And look, she played with incredible authority. She was revered. They had to turn away 3,000 people. <laughs> In fact, the, the uh, promoters of the concert were fine, um, were prosecuted because they uh, because they over they were undercated for the for the event. So that in itself is, is amazing. And then afterwards, she was just met with uh, she was mobbed. There was a frenzy <laughs> following her, and such to the extent that the Lord Mayor of Melbourne decided to put together a um, uh, a fund to try and support her to be uh, taught overseas and to be uh, for her to travel and to experience. The, uh, music more widely. So that was the beginning, really. And it was only a few months after that concert when she was in this amazing footage that we've got from 3LO. Yes, yes, that's right. Yes, that film from 1929, November, I think, 1929, is a... Um, is is really fascinating because it really captures her at that nexus, that point where she started to uh, flourish as a player and become recognised. And uh, it's interesting that the Fox movie tone, I think they visited Melbourne for just a few days at that time. It was the very early days of the uh, working with the sound and vision. And uh, they chose to to you know, to represent Nancy as a, an important subject in Melbourne at that time. So it's, it's remarkable that that, that event occurred. And... Yeah, she's she's playing her own composition, a piece that she wrote at the age of ten, <laughs> and uh, and it's beautifully mature, wonderful music, and it's before she had any formal tuition at all, so that makes it all even even the more special. And I understand that it was thought that this footage had disappeared in a fire yes. forty years ago, right. and it's only recently come to light. Yes, the negatives or the outtakes of these Fox movie uh, tone news have been have been sort of um, been discovered or and uh, disseminated. Now they're sort of available to the public at large, and now we can see this. And it's in remarkable quality. It's incredible to watch because the detail's all there and the sound's actually very good for the time. Okay. Well, let's play part of that video now, the sound, obviously, and it begins with the 3LO announcer introducing Nancy. Hello, Melbourne. The greatest treasure we now introduce to you, Nancy Weir, the girl pianist. Nancy Weir is 14 years of age. She has been studying the piano for the last three and a half years only. The piece she will play for you was composed by herself at the age of 10. As you see, this was before she started piano 40 lessons. It was this early indication of exceptional ability which brought about the engagement of Miss Freeman as her teacher. The world famous pianists, Friedman and Shura Shikaski, as well as all the leading musicians of Melbourne, have predicted a brilliant future for this little girl. Sure, Shikaski even made the definite statement that Nancy Weir, if given the right opportunity, should develop into one of the greatest women pianists of the world. The Lord Mayor of Melbourne is so interested that he has called together an influential committee which is now occupied in raising the sum of £2,000 to enable Nancy Weir to take a five-year course of study in Europe. And now hear Nancy Weir herself. When I was told that I was to broadcast from the 3 LA studio in Melbourne, I thought that it would be most exciting and interesting. But now the time has come, I'm a little bit scared about the talking. 
I would rather play to you than talk. I shall now play this little piece that I composed when I was ten. Now, if any listeners would like to see the video in full, you can find the link in the companion article to this podcast. Just follow the link in the show notes. Now, what happened next? So at this stage, she's 14. What happened next in her life? So after the concert, uh, a public subscription made by the Lord Mayor of Melbourne, he established funds uh, to support her going overseas. And uh, she firstly um, went to Berlin, I think. She might have briefly been in London, but she was in Berlin for a significant period and uh, auditioned for Arthur Schnabel, who was a very well-known, great teacher, very established um, teacher in Europe and performer. Uh, So she studied with uh, Schnabel for some time. She became a part of the establishment. The lessons was a total immersion experience. Experience at that time, you had to go to all of the classes. You had to travel with your teacher. I think she went to Switzerland with him. You had to go to all of the concerts. It was a very immersive experience. So she was thrown into the deep end. Schnabel, who was Jewish, left Germany in 1933 after the Nazis came to power. And Nancy Weir moved to London and studied at the Royal Academy of Music. World War II broke out in 1939 interrupting Nancy Weir's promising career when she was only 24. By then, she was already a gifted pianist with a remarkable intellect and memory. She had fluency in German and a phenomenal musical ear. It was said that Nancy Weir could hear as many as five musical lines simultaneously, whereas most professional musicians have difficulty with three. These were all skills that were soon to become invaluable when she became what she later called a musical spy. When the war broke out, we joined the Women's Auxiliary Air Force, or WAF, but she was then transferred to intelligence with the Royal Air Force because she spoke fluent German. Later in life, she said she'd spent time during the war sitting on a hilltop in Kent listening to the chatter of young German pilots. It's thought the intelligence gathered by Nancy Weir and others like her would have been relayed to decryption sites such as the famous Bletchley Park, the top-secret home of Britain's World War II codebreakers. Stephen Langley believes Nancy Weir's acute listening skills would have been highly useful, both in interpreting the German pilots' chatter and also as part of what was called DF, or direction finding, which was an essential skill that allowed the Allies to locate the positions of enemy aircraft and submarines. This made her invaluable in that setting. She was able to uh, hear, well, she had deep listening and great memory, retention skills, and that was utilised. <laughs> so, yes, she was listening. I, I think she was great use to them. So I think she became, I think she was even promoted to a, uh, I think, a flight officer status eventually. So she said she, was, she prevented bomb attacks <laughs> through her listening. There's not a lot known about exactly what transpired. We're doing a little bit about the wire stations and the direction-finding interception arrangements. They had stations dotted all over the place where people would be in a remote hut away from the uh, potential interference and they'd be listening to signals, very, very faint signals, and listening and calibrating where 
planes might be or where submarines might be by listening to to uh, to signals from different axes and being able to work out the relative strength of, of signals. So so that information typically was passed on to places like uh, Bletchley Park and Buckinghamshire and uh, so where it would have been you know, sort of formally used to, to for the war. News doesn't have to be boring. The Brits have given Prince Harry a new nickname after yet another tell-all interview. Oh, God, is it the ginger winder? <laughs> <laughs> Let the team at news.com.au get you up to speed each day with their podcast from the newsroom. A couple were busted joining the Mile High Club. Well, I guess they can't fly virgin anymore. <laughs> Politics, sport, red carpets, royals. Get all the goss in just a few minutes. Follow from the newsroom wherever you get your podcast from. Effort. So yes, remote listening arrangements. I, I think um, it required very sensitive equipment and required very very good ears. So I I would assume that's the type of work she was talking about when she mentioned the, uh, the her, her listening, her, her surveillance. The full extent of Nancy Weir's activities during World War Two will forever remain murky. Nancy Weir did say she spent two years in Cairo, seven months in Algiers and 15 months in Rome. And in one extraordinary story, Weir said, I was to fly into Rome, but the Allies had destroyed the airfield, so I had to parachute in. And she added, I think I am the only classical pianist in history who ever parachuted into Rome. While many people who knew Nancy Weir believe this really happened, others are equally certain it was simply evidence of her quirky sense of humour. Well, that's an interesting story. Parachute. She said that um, I think it was towards the end of the war and she was working as an interpreter for POW interviews. So I think there was a, in that capacity, she had to get into Rome. The airport had been bombed, apparently, and she was parachuted in. And then she, I don't know how she got out, but that's the uh, it's an interesting tale. But there are a few question marks about that. And of course, she didn't talk much about her war service at all, even after the 50-year period of secrecy had elapsed. So a a lot of the stories that we're hearing are really second-hand and third-hand, aren't they? They're stories Very that much she... so. Yeah, stories that sort of passed down through some of her students. I mean, look, some of the stories are incredible. One of her students um, uh, said that uh, she parachuted into Germany night after night behind the lines and spied for the Allies. And, uh, and, and he also validated that she went to Cairo constatizing as a cover while she was spying. But look, the story of being parachuted into Germany night after night and then plucked out. I think the parachuting stories seem to be sort of quite strong amongst uh, people who, who recount their experiences talking to Nancy Weir. And there's that one remarkable story about her being dropped behind enemy lines in Germany. Now, I find this very hard to believe. I don't know how this could happen. But uh, apparently she told um, Jeffrey Saber that, uh, that she was uh, dropped behind the enemy lines and spy for the Allies. And he was one of her students. Yes, yes, yes. So he said that. But look, um, you know, that, that's an interesting story. Maybe it happened. Maybe extraordinary things happened. Maybe she did do that and was spirited out in some some remarkable way. She said she had a very interesting war. That's her war words. So go figure. <laughs> so she did describe herself as a musical spy, didn't she? So what, what do you think that was the truth of her level of involvement? I think the DF activity, the listening, the deep listening, she had this extraordinary musical prowess. She had almost a savant ability in her 
in her listening, which enabled her to play large works with very, very little practice through just listening. She had that remarkable, rare ability to sort of uh, almost learn through osmosis, just through listening. So that was exploited. They, they could see that she had this ability and she could speak uh, um, uh, fluent German as well. I know that in they limited some of the uh, the Germans were very careful that they when they were communicating to try and keep the messages less than thirty seconds because they felt that the uh, direction finding capacity was less if they kept the messages really short. But they I've also read that people like Nancy could intercept with with their abilities, their listening abilities, their deep listening, their um, yeah focus were able to sort of work with DF critically within a few seconds, which is which I think is a remarkable feat. And I think very few people had that ability. So she would have been in that, in that sort of higher class of in, intelligence and particularly listening. So I think listening was her main involvement. Now, she was I'm sure she was parachuted into places or did had quite extraordinary experiences. It's documented that she did give concerts in Cairo and in, um, in Algiers, and, and she, it, that's well documented that she did do that. And I'm sure there are a lot of undercover activities, to the extent of which we don't know the full story. But yes, I think interception and uh, yeah, surveillance would have been her main thrust. Now, what about life after the war? Did she come back to Australia? Yeah, she struggled a bit to re-establish her career after the war in London. She went back to London. She concertized for a bit. And then she decided her father became ill in 1954, I think. And then she came back to Australia about that time and then established herself in the musical establishment here. So, yeah, she started off in Melbourne for a while. She played at the 56 Olympics. She played the Schumann Concerto at the 1956 Olympics. And then she went up to Queensland and became a uh, member of the Queensland Conservatorium staff. And she taught extensively right up to 1980. Had many, many students who adored her. They revered her. She was held in the highest esteem. And she was quite an eccentric person. I think people sort of connected with her because of her independent spirit as well. And everyone spoke very admiringly about her music, her musicianship, her musical prowess, her gift for musical architecture, her her sense of style and all of that wonderful deep influence sort of made her an elder states person, you know, in the field. So, yeah, she was highly revered. How well known was she in Australia and in in Europe? Was she a household name? I don't think she was a household name in Europe. She was one of many people establishing themselves in the 30s. It was a tumultuous time. It would have been hard for her... She was her. It was predicted that she would become. I think uh, Shura Chakasi, great pianist who heard her in Melbourne in the early days, said that she would become one of the greatest stars ever. In fact, and when she was studying at the uh, Royal Academy of Music, they said that she had the greatest year since Mozart. Now that's a profound statement. That was, um, I think, came from Harold Craxton or someone within the Royal Academy of Music. And, you know, I think that that says a lot about her and that remarkable story of her learning the uh, Busoni Bach Chacon within a week. Very, very few people could do something like that. It's quite extraordinary. As a piano teacher and performer after the war in Melbourne, Nancy Weir made several recordings for the Spotlight record label, including the one we're playing through the podcast. Later at the Queensland Conservatorium Music School in Brisbane, she was described as a wild bronco who was passionate about teaching and performing music but had little time for bureaucratic niceties. 
We've been lucky enough to speak to Di Beatty, who was studying music at the Queensland Conservatorium when Nancy Weir was teaching there in the 60s. Di Beatty, who lives in Melbourne's East, is the sister of well-known classical musicians Keith and Geoffrey Crallon, and her whole family got to know Nancy Weir well. Di Beatty remembers her as gregarious, eccentric, and a lot of fun to be around. She'd had a, such a life. She'd never married, but she'd had a big, big, big life. And she'd done a lot of things on a very large canvas, I think. And um, also was very, very clever. And a beautiful pianist. All right. And did you know her little dog? Did you ever see oh, her little Cully, dog yes. on stage? Cully. Everybody Cully. knew Cully. The lift doors would open and Cully would wander out and look around. If Nancy wasn't there, she'd get back in with you and go to the next floor to find Nancy. And some people used to go, oh, come on, Cully, we'll find Nancy for you. So and Cully went everywhere with Nancy. She was her baby. And I remember there visiting mum there one day and mum got out of the lift with a little dog. She said, Cully's looking for Nancy. Have you seen Nancy? So Cully was very much treated pretty much as part of what happened at the Queensland Conservatorium at that okay. stage. All right. And Cully was sometimes on stage as well. Cully was sometimes on stage. I never saw her on stage. That was yes. probably after I'd left Brisbane. So did Cully just wander on stage or was she... Cully was... She someone said, I'm not sure about that, Keith did tell me she'd sometimes sit under the piano. So I think I have a feeling that someone told me, yes, she did wander on and off stage. And I think people got used to the fact that Cully was part of the package you got when you got Nancy. I'm pretty sure that she was, well, she was just like her child, obviously. And occasionally someone else would take her out for a a little toilet break and she'd come back in again. So what do you know about Nancy Weir from the war years? What are you aware of? My knowledge about the war years is that She was a member of the resistance. She was dropped in to occupy France and she was obviously parachuted in because the story I said about her being parachuted in after the war to give a piano recital. I mean, it's pretty bizarre, isn't it? You parachute someone in to at the end of the war because it was too dangerous to land in Berlin. It was too dangerous at that stage still to land anywhere. That's that's what I got from what my brother told me. Um, and she gave a recital, so therefore she was absolutely used to parachuting right. into Europe because she'd okay. obviously, you, you don't just parachute someone in to do a piano recital, she hasn't done it before. So, right. I, 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 and Keith, the a text I got from Keith said that he, he's pretty sure that, well, almost absolutely sure that, yes, she was, she parachuted into occupied France, she was behind enemy lines, she was, and of course with her, her fluent German, one can only imagine. It'd be nice to know. But the fact that she never really gave any any report or any newspaper any about that maybe meant that she didn't want to divulge too much about what went on. Nancy Weir lived out her final years in Queensland and continued to share her love of music with everyone around her. She did a few things. I think she toured China as an ambassador for Australia at one point in the 60s, which is an interesting story in itself. That would be a great one to flesh out. I'd like to know more about that. And she developed a hearing disorder, which really affected her concertizing, and she was cured to some degree. But I think it did make life a little less comfortable for her. So she sort of pursued a few other things as well. She she ran a theatre, the Rialto Theatre in Brisbane, for a while, for several years after she retired. And then, yes, she ran a store and she lived in, a, in an old church. 
And uh, she drove a little mini minor, by all accounts, which had registration stickers all over the windows. And when she was pulled over and asked to remove them, she just um, put the car aside and bought another car and started collecting stickers again. (laughs) (laughs) And she lived to the grand age of 93. Yes, she did. Yes, absolutely. And apparently she had a piano in the nursing home where she was and she was concertizing and playing right up to the end. And there's some beautiful stories about her. She really believed in community music and she did a lot to foster community music and bring people into her into her musical world. And so she ran musical safaris, these tours with university students, and they go into weird places all over the all over in the country, everywhere, and they'd be concertizing and they'd be sort of sharing music to a broader audience. And I think that that says a lot about her sort of her belief in music as something that's for everybody. Thanks for listening. This has been In Black and White, a podcast about some of Victoria's forgotten characters. Written and hosted by me, Jen Kelly, and produced by Peter Fuller for The Herald Sun. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents... We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? Uh, I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.